Well, we come into um, what will likely be the, the last of this series of messages on Holy Spirit. And uh, not that we're not going to ever talk about him again, but in this context of our model that we are building, that really Jesus is building in his communication here with his disciples in John 14, 15, 16, remember that we have a foundation, which is the Father who then sent the Son. This becomes the, the uh, structure that holds our faith, that we rely upon it, not only the signs that he did, not only what he, the words that he taught, but who he is and what he has accomplished for us uh, in his death, burial, resurrection, ascension. And so our faith is placed there that in, in response to the work of God and Jesus Christ, and in response to that, we have, of course, the gifting to us of Holy Spirit as divinely resident within us. And we've talked about that for a couple of weeks. What I want to uh, do, because this is the order in which Jesus presented this, uh, we are actually going back chronologically. We are going back to our salvation experience where we first made that commitment to Jesus Christ and recognizing the Holy Spirit's role there as well. Remember when we talked about the cake plate and the structure, um, you don't just put a, a layer, a solid layer on top of cake, you have little supports that are hidden inside the cake, usually that take it down to the foundation. And same with the Holy Spirit, he is not just introduced for the very first time after you trust in Christ, he takes up residence at that point, but his activity begins really in conjunction with the work of Jesus Christ. And we have seen the relationship there between the Father, Son, and Spirit. And we see that while they are co-equals, they are nonetheless submitting to one another. And a powerful testimony to God's humility and so we have seen that. We talked about, you talked about in the adult Sunday school class today about wives submitting their husbands, about what submission is all about, uh, based upon the prior verses of uh, submitting one to another, that we do so as to the Lord. And so we, we have this picture for us, wonderfully presented, of perfect submission among co-equals. That the Father sends the Son, the Son is sent by the Father, obeys the Father, only wants to speak what the Father says, that the Spirit waits upon the Son, the Son sends the Spirit, and now the Spirit is going to testify to the Son and all the Son taught. And he's going to bring it to your memory of what you have been ministered to by the, by the Son. And we have this perfect uh, willingness to uh, surrender oneself to the benefit and work of another. And picture for us within the triune God. And so we come now to... Uh, this prior work of Holy Spirit. And I want to share with you, there are very, very, very few passages in Scripture that talk to this issue. What is the role of Holy Spirit to those who are not yet believers? If you go through, and I did this past week just to make sure and remind myself, I went through every use of the word Holy Spirit, particularly in the New Testament as it applies to us, uh, and particularly in the epistles and, and such post, uh, after Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. So Acts is a historical book of that period of time. And then you have the epistles uh, in conjunction with that. And uh, just looking at what is the reference of the Holy Spirit always toward. It's always toward those who are of faith, 
who have already trusted in Jesus Christ, an overwhelming preponderance of verses about the Holy Spirit its relationship with Christians, with those who have already accepted Christ as their Savior. And we've discussed that. We have engaged in that in the last several weeks. Um, but when you come to looking for passages that deal with the Holy Spirit in reference to unbelievers, to those who have not trusted in Jesus Christ, there are extraordinarily few. And that makes this passage before us here of Jesus' conversation with the disciples of great importance. And so in John chapter 16, we have the fullest description of Holy Spirit's work uh, toward unbelievers, uh, toward the world, as, it, as Jesus is going to communicate that. It is not the only one. There are a couple of others that I'll reference, um, but it is overwhelmingly the most substantial um, in content as well as in quantity uh, is the most that you're going to see in one place describing it. And so the Lord not only is describing the helper, the comforter, uh, the paraclete, the come alongside her one uh, in relationship to his disciples, but also in the role of becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. How do, how, what's God's part in this? And it is horrific to see how men have taken really this only passage and a couple of scattered references, uh, one or two you have to do by inference, uh, and imply that somehow Holy Spirit ultimately is um, the primary aspect of salvation. Because if he is the one that regenerates us so that we can believe, that he is the primary provider of salvation. He makes you new, so then you can believe. And that is the Calvinistic model, that we reject um, completely and entirely. All right? that, is, that is no place in our theology and our understanding, because there's no place in the scriptures. Um, though all those terms and references apply to those who, by faith, have already trusted in Jesus Christ. Does that mean the Holy Spirit has no role? That is not what we teach. But it is a role that is a manifestation of the invitation of God to salvation. And it is sufficient for people to come to faith. Uh, and you might say, well, does it create faith? No, and that's why I really, when we sing that song, creating faith in him, in my hymnal, that word creating is scratched out. It directs faith to Jesus Christ. It doesn't create faith in Jesus Christ. You, every human being has the capacity of faith. This is the gift of God. You didn't earn it, deserve it, or develop it. It is something God has instilled in every man that all men have a capacity of faith and has the authority to direct that faith wheresoever he chooses. And if people want to choose to believe in Santa Claus, then that is their choice if they want to believe in that. If they want to believe in uh, any ism out there, want to believe in nothing, nihilism, if they want to believe in any of those, that is their choice. We believe in individual soul liberty, and that means that they have the authority and the right to believe what they choose to believe, but they have to live with the consequences of their beliefs. So if you choose to believe in something that is imaginary or false and a lie, um, you're going to have to live with the consequences of that, which is that you're going to be condemned by the truth. And we're going to see condemnation being part of this uh, description here of what God is going to engage in with unbelievers. And so um, God is going to engage that freedom of man to choose 
but he's going to engage it to assist us. Remember, what is Holy Spirit's description? Helper. He comes alongside us to help us. And so what is it that he does with regard to the unbeliever and his help with the unbeliever? I'm going to use three terms here. They are not interchangeable. They are three distinct roles that Holy Spirit has that I see from Scripture. We have one particular one we're going to focus in on today uh, here in this Scripture, but I want to share with you the other two as well. The first role that I see in the Scripture is that he is... Uh, in Genesis, described as uh, engaged in an activity uh, of contention. He is contending with man. I, and God comes to know and says, my spirit will not always contend with man. That is that there is a warfare that goes on um, between Holy Spirit and mankind to engage them and 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 to contend against them. And you might look at that warfare and say, well, it's, he, he's pretty much lost that war. Um, no, he hasn't. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit here in the second word. And so there is a contentious relationship that the Holy Spirit and man are not in fellowship one with another. The Spirit contends against the Spirit within a man. And so that there is this, this warfare and that overwhelming description, that word, um, I think envelops the other two concepts as well. And it's going to be very important to my development. So I want to establish that. The second word that we find uh, in Thessalonians is that he is the restrainer of the world's sin. And so he is there holding the sin back of the world. Uh, we don't know just how evil the world could be if Holy Spirit wasn't engaged in restraining man from sin. Uh, does God use other mechanisms as well? Yes, he uses the law. He uses authorities. That's why our authorities, whether they be on a local level, national, international level, uh, we submit to because they're there for our benefit. They carry a sword for a reason to keep men's sin in check. But one of the other elements that God uses is Holy Spirit. And so he is the restrainer. Thessalonians says that one day he is going to be taken away. Boy, you want to be in a scary world? Be in a world where the Holy Spirit is removed as a restrainer. And if he's removed as a restrainer, we know that the church must go with him because we are the indwelt ones of the Holy Spirit. So therefore, the Spirit of God uh, is going away from the world has to be correlated with the rapture of the church. So eschatologically, we have that relationship. But we know right now he is the restrainer. And I would, I would, I would offer up to you that, that is wrapped up in this word contending, that he is at odds with the world, that he is doing things on behalf of people of faith in contending with the world to restrain them in their sin so that you and I can function and that others can find Jesus Christ, can find the gospel and hear it, even though the world be fully against them and actively at war, men can still look to the heavens, sun, moon, and stars, and hear them declare the glory of God. They look to creation and see the invisible attributes of God. All of these things are the Spirit of God contending against the God of this age, Satan himself, who's going to be referenced in this text in, in uh, John 16. So those are two 
concepts that the Bible does teach about Holy Spirit. And as you notice, they are universal. That is, they are for all men. Um, he is not in a contentious relationship with Christians. He is not contending with you because you have already submitted yourself to Jesus Christ, to God, to Holy Spirit. And now it is a matter not of uh, warfare, but now he is a paraclete. He is alongside you. He's your helper. And we are hopefully willingly wanting that in our life. We want him active, and we want him to guide us, to direct us, to fill us, to empower us. We desire that. We are not in a contentious relationship. That does not mean that we are always submitting to him. It does not mean that we're always walking with him. We can still, as we talked about last week, uh, engage ourselves in, in uh, grieving him. Uh, we can engage ourselves in resisting him and in quenching him. Those are the three terms. I only got two of them last week. I missed grieving. I, for, I, I didn't get to it last week uh, of the three ways Christians uh, have problems with the Holy Spirit and that, that we, he does not force himself into our lives. He sits and waits for us to be responsive and then he can be more active. The more we respond, the more Holy Spirit is active in our life. And the less responsive we are, the less Holy Spirit will be active in your life. It is... He's not going to override your will. He never, God never does. Uh, he invites you to submit your will to him, not to override it. So we come to John 16, and Jesus Christ gives us the, length, the fullest description, really, of the work of the Holy Spirit toward unbelievers. So let's pick up in verse 5. And it says, now, but now I go to, away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because, I do, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but... Whatever he hears, he will speak. He will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. So Jesus Christ is still in the context of his disciples, still communicating to them that their heart should not be troubled, and it is still to their advantage that he goes away so that the Spirit of God could come take residence within them, which, in Jesus' view, is a superior position to just walking the earth with him. Please put that into your mind. Having Holy Spirit resident within us is superior to walking next to Jesus on earth. Many of us think, well, if I could have been the one back there when Jesus actually walked there, wouldn't that have been wonderful? Wouldn't it have been spectacular to go where Jesus went and to hear and watch him do what he did and, and to see all the, and to hear his teaching? Wouldn't have that been spectacular? In Jesus' view, you have a superior experience than the disciples prior to Acts chapter 2. 
because they didn't have the Holy Spirit of God residing in them. And the fact remains, the only reason that would have any benefit to you um, would be because you already have the Holy Spirit in you. The fact is, is that the disciples walked with Jesus every day and didn't get it. They followed him, but they didn't understand. Do you really want to just experience it all without your understanding engaged? That sounds like a charismatic position. And that's why Paul says, I'd rather speak five words with understanding than all these other languages without. Engage our understanding. The only way you would benefit from it is if you had the Holy Spirit in you and the disciples didn't. And Jesus says, it's going to be for your betterment that I go away and that the Holy Spirit take up residence in you. Then you will be guided into truth um, internally through the Word of God, by the help of the Spirit of God, and that is of great benefit to you. And now, here's a fishermen and tax collectors and people like that that are going to have the Spirit of God within them and are going to be capable of, of silencing religious leaders, silencing political leaders, and penning words of Scripture. Incredible! They couldn't have done that while Jesus was on the earth. But they could do that when the Spirit was within them. So do not diminish his role today in your life. Now, having said that, that's the context. He's still talking about that, but he, he excerpts a little bit. And he, and he wants to talk about not only the relationship of Holy Spirit with you, but his relationship with everyone else. And some people, and of course the Calvinists, let me just share with you. The Calvinists, whenever they see the word world, like in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, they insert the elect, all right? To them, the world is only the world of the elect. Uh, nobody else matters, apparently. Nobody else counts. So when you take a census of the world and you're a Calvinist, you only pick elect people because that's the only population that matters. Sound troublesome to you? It should. Particularly because... Uh, and John especially attacks Calvinism and Calvin wasn't alive. I know that. Okay, neither was St. Augustine and, and uh, it wasn't much of a saint. Uh, and so we have uh, John saying that he died for not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the world in 1 John. Well, that makes it very clear that in John's mind, the world doesn't equal the elect. And this is another passage where it's very plain that the world doesn't equal the elect because look at what he says right off here. It says, verse 9, of sin. Holy Spirit's going to convict the world of sin. Of sin because they do not believe in me. He doesn't say because you don't believe in me, you elect people, and you need to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit so you can believe in me. That is not what he says. He is going to convict the world. Why? Because the world, they, unbelievers, don't believe in me. So they need to have conviction. And it is not regeneration that God offers to unbelievers. It is conviction that he does to unbelievers. Regeneration is his response to our responding to the gospel. To help us respond to the gospel, the mechanism that God uses is godly sorrow. He's trying to produce in you a sorrowfulness for your sin. That is what conviction is about. In Romans, Paul uses the idea that godly sorrow leads you to repentance. Okay? And that is not regeneration. 
That is conviction. And so he's going to convict the world of three things, of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And these three things we require because, frankly, uh, men are too proud to acknowledge their sin. We rationalize it, we deny it, we, we mainstream it, we legalize it, uh, we'll do anything and everything but just acknowledge your sin and your sinfulness. And God understands that that is the human condition. And so of all the things he could do to assist us in the process of coming to Christ, to, to hear the gospel, the one thing he understands you desperately need is to be sorry and to know that you are a sinner. And that you will not get to by your own merits. And you will not get to it by your own thought process. You will not get there by my helping it. You will just hate me if I keep trying to convict you of your sin. I cannot do it. We try with our children, don't us? We try to make them feel guilty for their sin. All right? And so... Um, and we use psychological warfare on them, and God doesn't involve himself in psychological warfare for us. He doesn't. He just brings conviction. He just speaks the truth and let it penetrate. Your child has a conscience. You just need to touch it every now and then and say, is that right or is that wrong? Is that loving or is that hateful? And this is what Holy Spirit does with regard to man and, and to a point. And we understand, hopefully, that the Bible does talk about a time when men's consciences become seared as with a hot iron and they are given over. That is a frightening concept that God gives them over to a debased mind. So when I'm praying for people's salvation, what I'm essentially praying is, God, do not give up on them. Do not give them over to their debased mind. I know their mind is debased because they keep sinning. They're staying in rebellion. They're, they're in this condition. And, but God, keep convicting them. So when you're praying for Lord, lead them to salvation, uh, which is, sounds an awful lot like a Calvinistic prayer, and, and many times the way Christians pray that prayer, it is. You're saying, God, please save them, um, as though it's God's fault that they are unregenerate. Uh, and it is not. It is their fault. And what we're really praying is, God, keep on convicting them of their sin by any and every means, but especially by your spirit. Because you cannot trust their feelings, you cannot trust their conscience, you cannot trust uh, society. Um, there's plenty of people in prison today who are proven guilty who say, didn't do it. If you've been in the prison ministry for any length of time, 90% of people there are innocent by their own testimony. It's a rare one. They'll say, I got caught, I was guilty, I was stupid, and, or I was into this. Um, they'll usually, it's my mom's fault, my dad's fault, my friend's fault, government's fault, teacher's fault, somebody, it's somebody's fault, but it's not me. And so God comes in and intervenes, and his intervention is not to um, awaken some divine spark in you. Uh, that's the other end of the spectrum, that somehow we are born innocent, and this world makes us corrupt, and, and that there's this, there's this goodness that's inherently in man that just needs to be brought forward. No, that's not what conviction is. Um, and the Bible is very clear, you cannot trust your conscience. 
And so what is it the Holy Spirit does? He comes and he brings upon you a weight of your sin that makes you sorrowful. Yes, the evidence of Holy Spirit's work is sorrow. It is not enjoyable to watch, but it is very pleasing. When that person breaks down and the weight of their sin begins to be substantial to them and they, and they let it settle upon them and you can see it in their eyes and their demeanor as they slump their shoulders, as their eyes are downcast, as they start to quiver and as the tears start to flow, we say, praise God! Because his conviction is at work. Because that sorrow is godly sorrow when it is sorrow for sin. Now, not sorrow for getting caught. <laughs> sorrow for consequences of sin. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Sorrow for the sin. How can I tell difference between someone who's sorry for their sin or sorry they got caught in their sin? Well, um, the people who are genuinely sorry for their sin have no problems paying the consequences of sin. Because they know they deserve it. So they gladly serve the time, pay the price, endure the punishment. Yes, I'm genuinely sorry, Mom, Dad, you should punish me. I deserve it. And of course, you as a parent go, Oh, that's so blessed and wonderful. I just can't punish him now. Yes, you must. But godly sorrow brings repentance, true repentance that says, I don't want that in my life anymore. Never again. I can't convict the world of sin. I can confront the world with their sin, and we have a mechanism to do that. It's called the law. So if I confront the world with the Ten Commandments, I'm confronting them with the law, a synopsis of it, uh, a, a, a snapshot of it and, and there's some of the law it's not the standards to get to heaven it's not even the minimum requirements it's, it's just uh, why don't you start here see if you, how you do it this, these ten and they're guilty because if they can understand the law they're guilty of the law by then they've already disobeyed their parents guaranteed They've already slandered their God, guaranteed. They've already coveted. They've already um, done most of all those things. If, you're, if they're of age enough to engage them, they've already done most of that breaking of the law. And so I can confront them with that, but I can't make them feel sorry for that. I cannot bring in their life godly sorrow. Even Holy Spirit, as he engages people, cannot force them to feel sorry but he can convict them. That is, he keeps reminding them and let the weight of their sin kept pressing upon their heart, upon their mind, upon uh, their being, that they uh, either have to run away from that conviction of the Holy Spirit or they have to embrace it. And yes, they still have a choice. While Holy Spirit is convicting them, they have to respond one way or the other. So why do they need to be Convicted of sin because they don't believe in Jesus Christ. And thus, he does this to all men. He convicts all men of sin. 
And yes, is the law there for us to use to confront them with sin and just show them, well, that's sin? Yes. The sin is a school teacher. It's there to teach you what is and isn't sin. And if someone wants to get into a debate with me over what is and isn't sin, well, they are not under the conviction of the Holy Spirit because I really don't need to debate that. The fact is they know, should know, have opportunity to know, but they don't want to. They are stubborn in it. Hard-hearted is the biblical term. They have hearts of stone that, because they do not believe. So because they don't want to believe in Jesus Christ, they have to be convicted by the Holy Spirit, not by you, not by me. Um, it is simply under the Holy Spirit, and we must wait for the Holy Spirit to do that job and recognize even when the Holy Spirit does convict them of sin, does not necessitate they must believe in Jesus Christ. At some point, he very well may stop and give them over to a reprobate mind. And thus we keep praying, Lord, here's this one I love. They're lost. Convict them. Don't give up. Don't give them over to a reprobate mind. Don't give them up. Keep convicting them. Give them another chance. Bring to their lives others who will share the gospel and confront them with their sin. This is where it must begin. They must recognize their sinfulness. They will never believe in a Savior if they have nothing to be saved from in their own mind. And so I am content to instruct my children and, and demonstrate before them what righteousness is, and then, as they disobey, to punish that righteousness. But I cannot make them repentant. I cannot make them sorrowful. I cannot do that. But the Spirit can. And so, in the midst of all of my disciplinary actions, uh, high on that list is my prayer, Oh, Lord, please convict them. Because the evidence is there that they are not walking with you. And whether that's a parent, a child, a, a neighbor, a friend, a co-worker, a, a fellow student, um, we pray those prayers because it's beyond us to convict. We can confront. Warily, because we recognize that I'm a sinner confronting a sinner. And, and they will inevitably know one passage of Scripture, won't they? Get that moat out of your own, a beam out of your own eye before you go after my moat. Never mind that I have the moat and they have the beam on many occasions, but they'll, they'll say, You're a, you know, you don't come after me if you got this in your life. So they have plenty of things they could say about me to justify themselves. And the fact is, we walk around uh, society and we do that. Why do we need convicted of sin? By divine sources. Because I walk around society and I look over here and I say, well, I'm better than those people. I'm better than them. I mean, look, they're criminals. Look over here. These people have no, they don't value it. They deserve to be like that because of the choices they're making. These people are on drugs. These, I'm better than these people. This guy, look what he did to his family. Look at how he beat on them. Uh, look at how they, they did this and that. And I can walk around society, compare myself to everyone else, and I come out pretty, pretty good. But when God says, no, you're not the measure, they're not the measure. And so what is it that the Holy Spirit uses to convict them of sin? Well, 
People were convicted of sin when Jesus was walking the earth because he lived perfectly. Well, now he's leaving. Now you don't have a perfect example of sinless righteousness. And so the Holy Spirit comes in and he says, not only am I going to convict you of sin, I'm going to also convict you of righteousness. Look at the next verse. It says, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. I can't point to Jesus and say, this is righteousness and that condemns you. I could, the disciples could do that. You can condemn the Pharisees because here's Jesus. You don't act anything like him, and he's the perfect son of God. He is the sinless one, and you are whitewashed sepulchers. You're you are dead inside. And I can compare. I, I visually can see Jesus Christ and hear his words and, and say, there is what it looks like. Can you imagine being raised with that? I mean, that is your older brother? Those poor, that poor James, you know. Mary, can't you be more like your brother? No, I can't. <laughs> Why can't you be more like your brother? Because he's perfect. He's the son of God. So I'm pretty sure Mary never said that to James or any other boys. You can't be like your older brother. But you have the older brother remind you that that's righteousness and I'm not like that at all. He never disobeys mom and dad. Ever. What is wrong with that kid? Who wants to play with him? In our parenting class, I talked about children forming a mafia against their parents when you have multiples, you know, and can you imagine the mafia in that family when you have the perfect son of God, you know, all the younger siblings? Let's get him. We can never get him in trouble because he never tells a lie. Ever. About anything. We don't have Jesus to point to. He has completed his work and has gone to the Father and has put the payment for my sin uh, in the heavenly places so that I can be accused no longer. He has cast out the evil one from that place of accusation and now I stand redeemed before God because of his work as my mediator uh, in that heavenly realm. He is on the throne. He has broken open four, five seals. He's about to break open the sixth and he is there, not here. So we need a convictor not only of sin, but of righteousness. And again, the church has failed because it's not really our role. Um, our role is to live righteously. The world should look at us just as we confront the world with sin through the law. We ought to be confronting the, ro- the world with righteousness by our lives. We should live righteously and godly in this present world. I'm pretty sure the Bible says that somewhere, like Titus. Looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So we can confront the world with righteousness by living it. But again, um, contrary to Jerry Falwell and the moral majority, we cannot legislate it. You cannot force righteousness onto people. But you, as saints, holy ones of God, set apart to Jesus Christ, who have submitted yourself to the Spirit of God, should live righteously and godly in this present world. 
You are the testifier, the confronting the world with righteousness. But again, that doesn't equal convicting them of righteousness. Spirit comes in. First of all, he is empowering you to do that. So you don't do that of your own power. He does help you do that. So he is involved there as well. But he is convicting the world of what is right. And there is still, even in the darkened state that we live in today, and it is horrifically dark, um, on our uh, spiritual darkness on, in our college campuses is just frightening how dark those places are uh, and 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 in the and it's not just college it's just percolate right down through the educational system and can we still engage people and say that there is right and wrong and it's getting more and more difficult but it is still holy spirit's capacity to convict them of righteousness that then when they see something that is right, they can be convicted of it, but the Holy Spirit needs to do that. We need to give them something to look at, but we can't influence in their heart and in their mind, but the Spirit does. He will convict them of righteousness. We don't have Jesus to point to, because he's not walking the earth. We are supposed to be the little Jesuses. That's what the word Christian means, little Christ that they are supposed to look at and see righteousness, and the Spirit of God then takes your presentation of righteousness to them, your work ethic, your, your honesty, your integrity. He takes your uh, goodness, your uh, faithfulness, your self-control. He takes that that you're showing to the world, your little light. This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. And he makes it work in their heart. And he puts that little... And now it's not just something they casually observe, but they are meditating on. And now they're really watching, and it's starting to think, why? and they ask weird questions. Why are you like that? When someone of the world comes up to you and says, why are you like that? I want to tell you something. The Holy Spirit has already convicted them of righteousness. Because it's not enough just for them to have you hanging around and not care. They have been observant enough and now the Spirit is brought to the point that they're actually going to ask you, why are you like that? And don't think that that's something that's aggrandizing you. Remember, the only reason you can live righteously in this godless world uh, is because of God in you. That's not in them. But God wants to be in them. So you're just a couple of steps removed from where they are. So it's not to my accolades. And so I immediately tell them, why am I like this? Because Jesus Christ has made an incredible difference in my life. And I was once a sinner, but I came pardoned to receive for my soul. This is our testimony. And so the Spirit comes in, he convicts the world not only of sin, of their sin, and, and, and implementing many factors that are available for that, their conscience, the law, society, societal norms and mores and things like that, but, but the Spirit goes beyond those as well, but also of righteousness, because we don't have Christ, and, and we've tried that whole what would Jesus do movement that was going on, um, why was it destined to to just peter out because Jesus isn't here. So people started to interpret it. Well, would Jesus do that? Well, I don't know. Would Jesus use the internet? I don't know. You know, I don't know if Jesus would wear a shirt and tie. 
I'm pretty sure he didn't while he was on earth, so should I be in sandals and no socks? What would Jesus do? Well, he would be sitting right now and you would all be standing. That's how rabbis teach. They sit down, you stand up. But it, it, it's not necessary. <laughs> we have something better. Believe it or not, better. Because Jesus is in, in his flesh could only be in one place at one time, showing one group, even if it was a multitude, he could only show one group what righteousness looked like. But now, Holy Spirit resides in every one of his believers, and we get to live righteousness in front of people and be that little light that then the Spirit can use in their heart. And then now they start going, there is that person that keeps, I keep, why are they like that? They're asking that question because the Holy Spirit has already convicted them. And so you already know you have an ally there who is already at work in that person. And it is time for you to say, ah, here is sin, here is righteousness, here is Jesus Christ, here is the difference, and here is why. And now you have to decide who you're going to follow. Does that mean they're going to definitely follow after him? No. It just means the Holy Spirit's doing his job. Whether they respond by faith or by rejection, we don't know yet, but the Spirit's doing his job. And so when people feel uncomfortable around me, it's the Spirit doing his job. Usually if they're uncomfortable, they're being convicted of sin. If they want to run away from me. If they're being convicted of righteousness, usually it brings confusion and questions to their mind. Like why? They're usually confused by righteousness. Usually they want to run away from being reminded of their sin. So if they're being convicted of sin and they... That they they, they want to remove themselves or getting, being convicted of righteousness, usually they're just confused and they're asking a lot of questions. We come now to the third one. And that's in verse 11 of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. <laughs> um, let me begin by the underlying assumption that Jesus has just presented to you, and that is that there is a ruler of this world. And his name is Satan, the evil one. This is his world, his age. Um, when, in the temptation, when Jesus was confronted by Satan uh, after his, his fasting period, and Satan offers him uh, all the nations of the world. It takes him up to a high place so he can see all the nations of the earth. And he offers them to Jesus. He was, in fact, offering something that did belong to him. The nations of the earth. All of them. Because this is his world. He roars is prowls about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He is no longer has access to the heavenly realms. That is very evident from Scripture. Nor can it possibly be that he has access to heavenly realms because the blood of Jesus Christ has been perfected there already. So he's already been judged. He's already been cast out of that place. That's why in the New Testament he's not described as your accuser. He is described as your <laughs> enemy on earth. He's the one you're going toe-to-toe -to -toe with here on earth. This is his place. 
Yet he is under judgment because that judgment has already begun. He's been cast out of heaven. It made him really mad. Uh, when did that happen? That happened 2,000 years ago almost, not quite. And uh, we're coming up on that very soon, within about uh, 13 years. You see, our calendars are all messed up because you should have never started at Jesus' birth. You should have started at his death and resurrection. So we are not at year 2000 yet. We got a few years to go. Getting close, about 14 years, something like that. Now I got sidetracked with all that. Here we go. <sighs> so there is a judgment coming. We know that he's been cast out of heaven. We know that his he knows that his time here is short, and so he is with a vengeance attacking the people of faith. And he does it through his followers, and that is the nations. So when I come up against an entity called the United Nations, insert the word the United Followers of Satan, because that is exactly who they belong to. And people come after me a little bit because, Pastor, you believe in all of these conspiracies. And I go, I know I do, because I believe in a conspirator. His name is Satan, and the nations are his, and this world is at his disposal. And he hates us. So yes, I know. I, I believe these things. Not, not because I'm gullible, but because I am not gullible. I'm not so foolish to think that any nation on earth has my well-being as its foremost thought. Rather, for the subjugation and the destruction of people, this is what Satan desires, particularly the people of God. So do I trust no, I don't put my trust in men. Whether they have MDs behind their name or not. Whether they have PhDs behind their name. Whether you have president in front of their name or senator or mayor. I don't put my trust in them. I do not put my trust in the education of man. Because it fundamentally is there to deny God. You don't believe me? Tell me one point of creation story that isn't under direct attack by science. One point. The Bible says there's one sun. They can't even get that. They can't even agree to that. So yes, I believe that. And I believe that I am wary of technology. Yes, because I'm a conspiracist. Yes, because I believe in a conspirator. And we are foolish not to, but I know that he is already under judgment. And so the world needs to be convicted, not only of sin, of righteousness, but that there is a judgment, that there is a judge over all the earth, that one that looks upon us and, and, will, and, and will determine our eternity. They need, I can communicate that to them. I can confront them with that. I can even show them examples of that. And they can deny it. But the Spirit can take that and convict them of that. And that's one of the major arguments I use with young people today is because they have no concept of, of, of fairness and of judgment. And until you put them in a courtroom and they're the victim, now all of a sudden they want punishment. But if they're the perpetrator, all they want is mercy. 
They don't understand what justice is, and you have to put them in that courtroom and say, do you think the judge is righteous who lets off the person who, who murdered your whole family? Well, no! But if you were the murderer, you'd want off, wouldn't you? And so we confront them with the concepts of righteous judge, but the fact is the judgment is coming, and the ruler of this world is already judged. And so they are already living with substantial consequences for sin, but they don't even know it. They don't even realize the condition that they are in is, is already under judgment. We don't know what this earth was like prior to the flood. We don't know how marvelous this earth was prior to the flood. We can't even, I mean, if you pick up the children's books and try to have pictures of what Garden of Eden was like, it's like, they're clueless. You can't conceive of an earth without seasons. That is mild climate all the time, where there is no rain. Snow, sleet, wind. You can't conceive of that. I laugh when I see them with the little puffy clouds. Like, well, we call that beautiful, but that's judgment. We go on vacation to visit wonderful spots like the great big mountains and really deep valleys called canyons. And, and uh, these uh, places with... Rocks sticking up out of the earth, you know, Meteora, and then people go up there and build on them. And, and we go and we marvel at that stuff, and we don't think to ourselves, all of that is because of judgment. We go to Arches National Mine over here in Utah, and, and well, that's because of the judgment. Um, these are all, God's judgment is even pretty. Can you imagine what it all looked like before it? You can't. Well, now we are so many steps removed from that, we, we don't even understand that most of how we live is a judgment, that the very lifespan of man has been judged. And so we keep telling people, wages of sin is death. People die because of sin. It's a judgment. We have horrific, deadly diseases, pandemics that come upon us because of sin. And we're unwilling, and now we have gone so far from that. And that was the 80s. The 80s, we were, we were, we were giving frightening information about what AIDS was going to do to the population of, of humankind. And it was decimating the, the population of Africa, and still really is. And we have gone from, from recognizing that this is a punishment for sin, of homosexuality is pretty much the 97.8% of people contracted it that way. All you heard about was the drug users, but that was like 2% of people. Or blood transfusions, that was like 1% of people. Overwhelmingly, it was the homosexuals that were being affected by this, infected by it. And we have gone from seeing that as a judgment to now we have, <laughs> if you're not LGBTQ, friendly, you're evil. And yes, the Salvation Army 
and Chick-fil-A, and, 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 have relinquished. We live in an age that doesn't understand judgment, and so of any time ever in the history of man, Holy Spirit needs to convict people of judgment because they think these things are normative. But I can't convict. We confront, but we have this ministry of Holy Spirit to convict men of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. But we have to exercise the evidence that the Holy Spirit is within us. And so as he convicts the world, we are with him. He is our helper. And so we have to present that fact that there is sin. And you need to believe in Jesus Christ to be cleansed of it, that there is righteousness. And the only reason I live this way is by the power of the Holy Spirit to enable me to live in accordance with God's word and that there is an accounting that we all will have, all of us will have before God. Whether it is the believer at the judgment seat, judgment seat of Christ, or whether it is the unbeliever at the great white throne judgment, all of us will be confronted with the holy judge. And so we need to live our lives as an expression of this to be one of the tools the Holy Spirit uses alongside of his word, uh, which we have seen extensively, and recognize that as the world hates us, as we present to them a right view of sin, a right view of righteousness, and a right view of judgment, that they are going to resist that. They are going to uh, war against it because the Spirit is in a contentious relationship with the world. And as we talked about last week, if they hated Jesus, they should hate you. Uh, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it should not surprise you. So this week, if, they, if the Spirit of God is contending against them and restraining them and convicting them, what are we doing in love with them? What are we doing palling with them, trying to appease them? This is not the work of God, of the Spirit. This is the work of the evil one. You've made yourself among the nations. So we are called. As the Holy Spirit has come, he's come in us. And I am convinced that we are next to God's word. The most significant tool the Holy Spirit uses to convict people. You are. Next to God's word. God's word is the primary sword of the spirit. The committed Christian is his next favorite tool. The mechanism by which he convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. This is the most extensive information we have on the Holy Spirit's work with regard to the world. And we are called to be as agents in this world in this very short time. We are on this far end of these last days, and we are in perilous times. The Bible says that. And men will be lovers of themselves, boastful, proud, disobedient to parents, unholy, unloving. This is the description of our world. Our time is short. 
The Holy Spirit still has power to convict. But have we equipped, give him the equipment to do it well? If we are the tool, he has the skill. The Bible has not diminished. The Spirit has not diminished. So if there is little conviction going on in the world, it can only be one thing that is diminished, and that is the little lights that are supposed to be shining in Christ's stead. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your spirit that brought conviction in my life and continues to. Lord, I thank you. for illuminating me to the truth of your word by your spirit. Lord, we do pray this morning for sometimes our family, family members who do not know you as Savior and Lord. Some say they do. They lie and do not, they deceive themselves. and The truth isn't in them. For you are the truth. The way. Lord, we pray for our neighbors, some that we know and some that we don't know very well. Lord, convict them. We pray for some who have been in this church, but it is evident in their lives that they are not followers of you. Lord, convict them. Do not give them over to their debased mind bring into their lives those that would confront them with the truth of the gospel and with the testimony of righteousness and of judgment and against their sin. Lord, we have co-workers and extended family and sometimes even childhood friends that we know do not know you as Savior and Lord. Lord, convict them bring into their lives those that would shed light on their sin and of righteousness and the judgment to come. That you might tug at their hearts. That they might respond with godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Lord, we pray for your goodness in their life. To bring sorrow. and thus love them. And we know that your love for them is greater than ours. So we do not ask it based upon our love, but on your love for them. That you would bring conviction in them, through your word, and through us, your people. Lord, forgive us where we have failed to be lights for your gospel. Christ Jesus' name, amen.